Imagine we had a completely different Bible, one that puts global warming and climate change at the center of everything, a Bible designed to help us rise to this greatest of all global challenges. I mean, because it's an ancient library, we wouldn't expect it to actually use the terms global warming and climate change, since those terms emerge in the 1970s and 80s. But imagine if the underlying ideas were there, the values were there, the roles were clear, and the stakes, and the call to action. And not just there in the library, but right up front, center stage, plain as day. You know, so that all the main themes, the big biblical ideas, creation and sin and salvation and service, that all these themes were framed in ways that help us address this crisis so that there's no getting around it, no ignoring it or kicking the can, so that the challenge had to be named and confronted and met for the sake of humanity and for the sake of the creatures of the earth today and tomorrow. Imagine that Bible. Wouldn't that be something? A Bible we don't have to wring out like a rag to find some ecological value or vision or mission. So we don't have to bend over backwards to find some obscure verse here or there. A Bible that's ecological from verse one all the way to the end. Creation to revelation, Genesis, to Jesus. Wouldn't that be something? Yes, it would. And here's the thing. We don't have to wish for that Bible. That's the Bible we have. Turns out the bending over backwards has been going on for some time just in the other direction, obscuring and distorting and distracting from the ecological emphases that are already there throughout the biblical library. The word ecological isn't there, of course, any more than greenhouse effect or carbon sink or methane or geoengineering. Our ancestors put their ideas in the terms of their times, but the ideas are there right there, plain as day. If you think the Bible is not an ecological library, or that it's only occasionally so, that's because the overlooking, the obscuring, the bending over backwards distortions have been so effective for so long. If we read the Bible today with fresh eyes, it's unavoidable. What we would call ecology is center stage again and again from verse 1 all the way to the end, Genesis to Jesus. All the major themes, creation, sin, salvation, service, each is cast in unmistakably ecological terms. It's we who have twisted and torn them away from their roots. The truth is, the Bible is built for this crisis. You won't find global warming or climate change mentioned anywhere in Scripture, but make no mistake, they're on virtually every page. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between.
This is part one of our two-part series on the Bible and climate change, and in this episode, we'll start with Genesis, with creation, sin, and salvation. And in part two, we'll end with Jesus, with salvation and service. But first, a story about what may be the bleakest landscape I've ever seen. Costa Rica is a country of legendary beauty, but there is this one particular beach. The sand is jet black from volcanic stone. The ocean that day was calm and flat, which only added to the impression of a wide, featureless wasteland. The sky was slate gray. I was there that day to see the sea turtles, the cute little sea turtle babies, as they dug their way out of their nests buried beneath the sand and then down the slope of the beach to the open water. It turned out we had arrived a few days too early, and so we didn't see any turtles. What we did see was unnerving. First, There were these large birds, wood storks, white with black heads and long beaks, not up in the trees or out on the water, but just milling around on the black sand. I know beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but let's just say the aesthetic appeal of a wood stork is something of an acquired taste. And the clincher was the stray dogs skulking around. After a while, it dawned on me that the birds and the dogs were there for the same reason I was there, to see the cute little baby turtles, only their idea wasn't to cheer them on. Some of the dogs had grown impatient and started to dig here and there, and every once in a while they'd find a nest. All along that black beach were little fragments of turtle egg shells tumbling along in the breeze. The storks and the dogs and the people all eyed each other warily. The low waves came in, one by one, monotonous and indifferent. The whole scene was saturated with a kind of dread, partly because of the eggshells and the scavengers, but mainly because the real threat to those sea turtles is us. Poaching and habitat destruction for starters, and now climate change, warming and acidifying the oceans through the relentless burning of fossil fuels, including, of course, the jet fuel that had brought me to those black sands that day, and later would carry me home again. The Bible begins with two quite different creation stories. The first opens like this, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the first point to make about this story is right there in that opening phrase, the heavens and the earth. Hashemaim ve'et ha'eretz, the earth ha'eretz, isn't just dirt or soil or dry land, it's everything that isn't the heavens 
the great dome up above in which God places the stars, the heavens and the earth, that's all there is. So everything that isn't the heavenly dome, everything underneath the stars, is Haaretz, the earth. Today we would call it the biosphere, the three-dimensional zone where life can thrive. That's the first point. The second point about this opening creation story is that if we view it as a whole, it's clear that the story's primary theme is that God is a kind of artist, creating out of chaos a beautiful, hospitable place. Other ancient creation stories, including from some of Israel's neighbors, portrayed the world as a product of divine violence. One divine warrior making the earth, for example, out of another god's vanquished corpse. But in Genesis, God creates through speaking, like a sovereign, nonviolent, graceful poet. And what God creates, and the way God creates, is the opposite of violence and hostility. God creates as hospitality. God creates a habitat, a home, a place for creatures to live and to thrive, a biosphere. God first lays down the conditions of life, time, the rhythm of evening and morning, and space, the expanse of the firmament, and land and sea, and then God commands the earth, Haaretz, to bring forth plants and fruits and seeds, and then come the birds and the fish, the wood storks and the sea turtles, and then God commands the earth to bring forth land-based creatures, including, finally, a creature made in God's own image that is, a creature made capable of serving as a kind of viceroy, a caretaker for creation. In other words, God makes humankind responsible for creation's flourishing. Humanity will have dominion, God says, over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the creatures of the land. Now, some Christians and some critics of Christianity have interpreted this idea of dominion as though it's a license to pillage and destroy the world's creatures for our own self-serving purposes, but this is a drastic and dreadful misinterpretation. Remember, according to the story, humanity is created in the image of God, and God does not pillage or destroy. On the contrary, God is a gracious, creative host of the world's creatures, providing them with food, encouraging them to be fruitful and to multiply. A creature created in God's image, then, would likewise be gracious and creative and hospitable, providing and maintaining, as best we can, the conditions for life to thrive. This is the core of what it means to be human. Humanity is made and meant to serve as a shepherd for the world's creatures. And to anyone tempted to interpret dominion over fish and birds and beasts as a license to set up a factory farming operation, God immediately adds a proviso. In the very next verse, the one right after the line about dominion, God says that the plant world, with its seeds and fruit, is what humanity shall have for food. That's right. According to the first creation story in Genesis, 
God creates and instructs humankind to eat a plant-based diet. And once you take animal agriculture out of the equation, it becomes pretty clear what dominion means in this story. It means stewardship, not exploitation and extraction. It means responsibility and care, not enslavement and not extinction. But the larger point is that human beings are created to care for the earth, ha'eretz, to shepherd its creatures, to hospitably help them to thrive. And the second creation story in Genesis doubles down on this central idea. This time, humanity is cast as a gardener. The story begins not with a lush paradise, but with a muddy wasteland. It's just mud as far as the eye can see. Nothing living, nothing growing. And the reason for this, the storyteller says, is twofold. First, God has not yet made it rain. And second, God has not yet made you God has not yet made Adam, humanity, the one who will till the ground, the Adamah. The word translated till here is avad, to serve. And so we can put it this way. According to the second creation story in Genesis, nothing on earth is growing because there was no human being to serve the ground. No Adam to serve the Adamah. And sure enough, once God makes Adam out of the Adamah, God places Adam in the Garden of Eden with the explicit purpose of tilling it or serving it and keeping it or guarding it or caring for it. That is the original human calling, to till and to keep, to serve and guard and care for the garden. In the first creation story, a shepherd of creation. In the second, a gardener of creation. That's who we are. That's who we're made and meant to be. And this isn't just an incidental point or a sideshow or subplot to the main storyline about how we disobey God and eat a forbidden fruit. No, this story isn't about disobedience. It involves disobedience, yes, but it isn't about disobedience. What it's about is how humanity, because of an unholy mix of anxiety and pride and naivete, tragically and disastrously turns away from our original calling. That's what the story is about. We're given the role of gardener, the role of the good shepherd of creation, and we turn away from it. That's the primary plot, the main storyline. Humanity is introduced here as the creatures created and called to serve and guard and care for the earth, Haaretz. Not just the ground or the soil, but also the plants and the creatures, the biosphere, the atmosphere, the whole habitat, the conditions for life to thrive, the home for all God's creatures, great and small. And we turn away from that calling, the storyteller says. We turn away from ourselves, from who we really are. Because, in conversation with the serpent, we come to distrust God. 
We come to wonder whether God really has our best interests at heart. We come to wonder, why would God deny us the fruit of this one tree in the middle of the garden? I mean, we can eat of every other tree in the garden. Why not this one? Doesn't this arbitrary prohibition seem to suggest that the serpent just might be right? That God is holding something back from us? And if the serpent's right about that, perhaps he's also right that if we eat this fruit, we'll become like God. And then we could stand up for ourselves, you know? We'd be sovereign, God's equal, not dependent and vulnerable like a guest, but independent and in control like a host, not a caretaker like a gardener or a shepherd, but a creator like a God. We'd be divine. We'd be safe. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis in 1945, taught that humanity's fall into sin happens not only and not even primarily through the disobedience of eating the forbidden fruit. Rather, he says, the fall happens primarily through what we do next. We attempt to hide from God, as if we could, as if we're independent on our own. First, we hide physically by taking cover among the trees, and then we hide socially, so to speak, hiding by pointing the finger of blame away from ourselves. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. In a class I once took on the book of Genesis, the professor asked us what the consequences were for the transgression in the garden. We all said, God curses humanity and exiles them from Eden. And the professor smiled in that way that professors smile when they realize his or her students are about to learn something. Because that's not what happens in the story. God curses the serpent, but not humanity. God does say that the woman will have to undergo increased toil in childbirth and that the man will have to undergo increased toil in working the fields. But when it comes to a curse, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, if you think the story is fundamentally about human disobedience, then this is a rather puzzling response from God. Why would the ground be cursed because Adam ate the forbidden fruit? It seems like a non sequitur. But if we see the story as a whole from up on the balcony, well, then of course the ground is cursed. Humanity is created to care for the ground, to help the garden grow and bloom. And so when we turn away from that role and responsibility, when we distrust God and maneuver to become like God and then hide and blame, we demonstrate that we're not ready. We effectively abandon our post. We deny our calling and disqualify ourselves. In effect, we volunteer for exile. And when the gardener leaves, The garden will suffer. The ground, the earth, and its creatures will struggle without a shepherd. 
Once we bear in mind Adam's original calling, it makes perfect sense that the first casualty of sin is the Adamah. And it makes perfect sense, too, that when violence takes over the earth and God decides to go back to square one to restart creation, the new Adam, the new standard bearer of humanity, restores the original role, the human role, as caretaker for creation. Noah and his family, the story goes, gather representatives of all the earth species into the ark and then eventually into the new world, to start again. The ancient fable of Noah's Ark isn't an interlude or an aside, it's a reprise of creation's central themes, a kind of third creation story, underscoring humanity's role as servant and defender of the world's many creatures, sea turtles and wood storks and stray dogs. It's the story of the first explicit covenant between God and humanity, and also, please note, between God and every living creature. Indeed, between God and the earth, Ha'eretz. Likewise, a few chapters later, the story of Abraham and Sarah begins with God promising their descendants a land. Again, the word here is Ha'eretz, the same promised land that later becomes the focal point of the Exodus story. Over and over, the theme is reprised. And since it's the same word, Ha'eretz, from the story of Noah and the story of creation, in the story of Abraham and Sarah, too, it doesn't just refer to a mere patch of ground. It also refers to the plants and the animals, the whole habitat, the biosphere, and by extension, creation as a whole. The promised land is a microcosm, an emblem of the earth. And that's clear from the start. Even as God promises the land to Abram's descendants, in the same breath, God says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promised land isn't limited to a geographical Canaan. In the Jewish and Christian imaginations, the promised land opens up into a poetic land of Canaan, ultimately including all creation, all the families of the earth, Noah's Ark writ large, the great garden of the world. And as any gardener knows, or any shepherd of a flock, the survival and flourishing of life requires particular sets of conditions. The surrounding biosphere, the atmosphere, must be conducive to life. And what do we call those atmospheric conditions? In a word, we call them climate. The earth is a home to many, and we are created and called to care for it. The house belongs to God, the artist who makes out of chaos a beautiful, hospitable place to live. And to set God's house on fire, to knowingly change the conditions of the biosphere, the conditions of the earth, Ha'eretz, in death-dealing ways, or to stand idly by as God's house burns, to abandon our charge by neglecting to rein in and reverse those changing conditions as best we can, that 
is the very picture of humanity's fall into sin, as the authors of Genesis describe it. It's a gardener deserting the garden, a shepherd deserting the flock. This is the paradigmatic sin, the epitome, the original sin from which all other sins derive. The gardener, the shepherd, deserting the garden and the flock. And yet, even here, in this portrait of disaster, there are glimmers of hope and redemption. The story of the fall away from our true calling doubles as a blueprint for restoration and renewal. What we need is a master gardener to show us the way, a good shepherd to guide us home. Which brings us from Genesis to Jesus and to part two of this series on the Bible and climate change. Costa Rica is one of the most biodiverse countries on Earth, arguably the most densely alive place on the planet. In 1960, 50% of the country was rainforest. But then, over the next three decades, industrial deforestation picked up speed, and by 1987, more than half of the rainforest was gone. From 50% rainforest to 21%. And then, something truly remarkable happened. The country rallied around a new vision, from changes in the tax code to new land policies, and the land, Haaretz, responded. By 2005, 50% of Costa Rica was rainforest again. And today, nearly 30% of the country is protected land, national parks and wildlife sanctuaries. And for all those sea turtles, working with volunteers and experts, the government has set up protected hatchery programs at key locations up and down the coast, like little arcs moored along the seashore. Townspeople, too, who live on the coast, sometimes form little parade routes of protection down to the water, keeping the scavengers at bay, avian, canine, and human. And where I live, here in New England, one of our friends is working in turtle rehabilitation. And just two blocks from my house, a local nature center organizes an annual salamander brigade, closing roads and shepherding amphibians during key times of migration from the hills down to the wetlands, spotted salamanders and green tree frogs the size of a dime. Whenever you see or do this kind of thing, you can sense it, deep down, just how humane it is, how human, to stand in what might look like a wasteland with gray skies and black sand and proudly, tenderly shepherd a new little life all the way down to the open sea, to serve and guard and care for the garden, and the flock, and the conditions of the biosphere, the grand and beautiful and graceful hospitality that makes life possible.
that is our deepest calling, our original calling, the mission for which we were made. Strange New World is a SALT Project production written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer-Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer-Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And feel free to drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.